welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. Tonight, I've got Scott Selhorst, who is an SVP and executive consultant, and I've got Andrew Young, senior consultant, both for Leading Agile. We're going to talk about story points and some of the things that um, kind of come along with that conversation. But before we do that, um, could you both give the folks a little bit of an idea of the kind of work that you guys are focusing on right now? Maybe Scott, you go first, and Andrew, you second. Uh, sure. So I'm I'm focusing on helping organizations do transformation uh, from waterfall to agile and uh, generally in the context of becoming product-driven organizations. So changing the way that they flow work through their system from being project-oriented to product-oriented, focusing on outcomes and benefits and not just let's do these things because last year in the fall, we decided these were the things we should be doing. Okay. And Andrew? Yeah, I'm going to piggyback right on top of Scott there and uh, just add a little bit more context. Um, focusing on helping the product organization within these large companies become user-centric and uh, tie those outcomes to the users through the use of empathy. Okay, cool. Um, and, and we're going to talk about story points. So this came from a particular conversation that you guys were witness to, right, or part of? Yeah, it surfaced out of uh, one of our clients. Uh, I heard this steadfast rule across the organization that kept coming back to, we have to break our user stories down to smaller than eight points. We can't have anything smaller or larger than eight points. They had to be smaller than eight points, smaller than eight points. They became this written rule um, that everybody was tracking towards. And it got me really questioning our first principles. And as uh, I surfaced this to Scott, you know, we realized we were aligned everywhere across Leading Agile and on our client site and amongst our product organization and with our delivery coaches about first principles. But there was this disconnect of, you know, how that was manifesting with the client. So Scott and I had started, opened up a conversation around this. Okay. Um, and how would you guys describe, for, if, if people that are listening aren't familiar with story points, how would you guys describe what they are? Uh, so, so I'll start out. Uh, story to me, story points are a tool that we use in the in progressive elaboration to get uh, just enough understanding of about how much work a team can get done in a given sprint. Right? Okay. That's 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 it in a nutshell. Then we can unpack it, and different teams unpack it in different specific ways. So, uh, let me know if that's enough, or if you want to dive in. No, we can go into it. Yeah, let's 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 dig into it. Okay. So when when I first got introduced to story points way back in the day, it was it was through Mike Cohn, probably like a lot of people, and um, he talks about using a story point as an ideal developer day and acknowledging that uh, you very rarely have an ideal developer day, and so story story points could be, and he also introduced that they could be measures of complexity. Uh, there's, you know, Dave, I know you talk about trying to take into account uh, an, under, an appreciation for the risk associated with how I go about doing it, the effort required to do it, and um, the complexity. complexity of the work that I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, for, for me personally, what I, what I evolved into when I was still uh, writing code and pointing stories myself, it, I, I used complexity as this sort of generalized notion that helped me encapsulate the risk of my estimates being wrong because I couldn't do it in the time required. Maybe I didn't know how. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and the effort, right? So it was, it was almost like uh, an econometric approach to thinking about it. Yeah. Right. I, I was I was coming up with my best guess, which which built out of the world of I used to do pert estimates before I was yeah. <laughs> I miss pert. Yeah. So so that's that's how I think about it. Uh, but right, different teams use use different approaches, which is why I sort of opened up with ultimately, I want to know how much work a team can get done in a sprint, and and I mentioned that as as a progressive estimation. Because uh, there's, there's two things that are going on from, from an agile workflow cadence point of view. Uh, one of them is I don't want to do a bunch of work up front that I don't need to do because it might be waste. Like I don't want to take my limited constrained resources of the team's technical time to do deep estimation of things that 
until I need to do it. Right. Like, uh, you know, I, I think about story pointing is let's, let's get the team together and get that first pass. And then when, when I'm starting out a particular sprint, I'm going to go task out the stories and do right, deeper time-based estimates in order to figure out what I can do in a particular sprint, what stuff I pull into the sprint backlog. Okay. And, uh, and by analogy for me, it, it reminds me of uh, the telecom companies back when they were planning out uh, the, the hardware networks for routing phone calls or routing TCP IP traffic back in the day in the build out. You have, you have like two separate problems at, at the time of placing any given call, you've got to figure out how to route it right through all the different hops of all the different equipment and maintain some quality of service. And you can't solve for that at the time that you're building out the network because it takes, you know, months to install equipment and get usage right and put, put hardware out in the field. Right. So at the time of designing the network, you are doing a more abstract assessment of what the volume that has to go through the system would be. And so, so you're, you're solving based on the capacity of the equipment. And then in the moment at, you know, at the later time, you're solving based on the amount of consumption of capacity call by call. So to me, it's, it's a perfect analogy for story points and tasking. So, so Scott, when I hear you talk and at risk of oversimplifying that, um, and also leaning into some empathy of a whole bunch of product owners that I've been exposed to, what I heard there was an, a very academic answer of what to do with story points. And when I heard Dave first launch the question is, what is a story point? My head went straight to all these product owners that are going for, through their first exposure to this whole agile world. And when I think about what I've heard from them, to a product owner, a story point is a representation or a feedback loop from a delivery organization or team that they're a part of that says, you know that thing you're asking for? This is how big it is to us. And it allows that product owner and the product organization to have a relative understanding of all the asks that are coming through the backlog, how big they are. And then it's a feedback loop for the product owner to then adjust those asks accordingly to scale them down or scale them up or group some things or uh, slice some things differently so that we can actually have a better alignment of what the ask is from the product owner and the tech lead through to the delivery organization. Did I say something dramatically different there from you? Or did I just put two different lenses of oversimplification on it? Well, see, see, Dave, that's, that's why Andrew's here. Because I think both <laughs> are right. Um, right, I, th I think they're both absolutely true. All right, so I'm going to go to the source. So I was actually preparing for this, and I went and looked at um, Ron Jeffrey's blog. So Ron has been apologizing for story points since, since he's the one who's credited with inventing them. He's been apologizing for them since they came about. And I learned something that I didn't know when I read this stuff. So I'm just going to read a quick quote from this to you guys. Uh, it says, in XP, stories were originally estimated in time, in the time it would take to implement the story. We quickly went to what we called ideal days, which was informally described as how long it would take a pair to do it if the bastards would just leave you alone. We multiplied ideal days by a load factor to convert to actual implementation time. Load factor tended to be about three, so three real days to get an ideal day's work done. And they ran into trouble where people kept asking them, why do you need three days to do one day's worth of work? So that's when they switched to points. So he says, we started calling our uh, ideal days just points. So a story would be estimated at three points, which meant it would take nine days to complete. Which is totally different from how I describe it when I talk about risk, complexity, and effort. So how does that tie into what you guys were just talking about? Uh, to, to me, it, it comes back to uh, different teams use a different calculus to turn the amount of stuff you need to do into points. Okay. And different teams, this is where the relative size comes in. Different teams are made up of, of, of different makeups of people. So that load factoring is always going to be different as well. Yeah. And level of expertise and all the other stuff that goes along with it. Um, What's, what's fascinating about this, Dave, is, is after Scott and I had our initial conversation around this, I went straight to Excel and I started calcula calculating out load factors and different teams and how they were made up at the client and all these different permutations of this to ultimately represent uh, that quote. So for me, having a math background, you know, yeah. my initial thought was, okay, 
I don't want to use story points to represent this idea of what uh, an ideal point is because there's no such thing as an ideal point. Nor right. do I want to represent an ideal point as an ideal increment of time. And so when I think about all that, I have to have a baseline somewhere. And for each team, it's different and it changes and it changes over time. And that was the yeah. other interesting part of that quote that was missing for me is uh, a story point is going to migrate of what it represents as a team matures. Yeah. Okay. So um, you just mentioned that each team has a different way of looking at the size of a point. However, they're deciding what a point is in an organization. One team could do 60 points and that could be the equivalent of 10 points for another team. What about the organization that you were at where they were saying everything has to be eight points or, or less? Does that mean everything in the product backlog is supposed to be eight points or less or just everything they bring into a sprint? Everything they bring into a sprint okay. is, uh, was the, the context of this conversation. Okay. Um, you know, when I hear you say 60 to one team is 10 to another, I have lots of initial questions of, of if it's that dramatic how can you have these generalized comments within an organization what makes up the 60 versus the 10 if it's purely the size of the team or if it's the size of the team and complexity and risk or whatever those makeups are i have this struggle and i think this is ultimately what rooted my conversation with scott was how can there be that much difference across an organization where a team's doing 60 and a team's doing 10 uh, as I'm a product owner, again, put that product owner lens back on. Yeah. My team, whatever that means, the team I'm a part of, we're doing 10, but the other one's 60. And I get we're different and we're coached all the time to say, can't compare yourself to another team. But then I hear this generalized, you can't be bigger than an eight, but our teams kind of look the same. So, so can I try to give an explanation for this? Because I yeah, have one. I don't know I would if love one. resonate with you guys. So um, in terms of the teams first deciding what a point is for them. I consider that to be really important because it's part of them owning it. And in the same way that if we were talking about jazz and you say, what's good jazz, I might say John Coltrane and God forbid you might say Kenny G. Um, there's no way of defining like what jazz actually is or what good jazz actually is. Everybody's got a different opinion about that. So two teams looking at the same item might decide to call that item as their unit of measure by some different number. So it might be a one for one team, a 10 for another, 40 for another. But part of them taking ownership of this is them being allowed to decide how big, you know, how big they want to call things. But isn't there some version of anchoring to what that 10, the 40, or the four means to unique teams? Anchoring in what respect? Well, so how did they choose a 10? Or how did they choose a 40? Oh. How did they choose a four? Well, to me, it doesn't matter because it's, that's like saying, how did they decide how much a kilo was? It doesn't matter because it becomes a unit of measure we judge everything against. And so, I couldn't agree more with that. Okay. Um, but then put my product owner lens hat back on. Yeah. Um, when I have a whole bunch of coaches helping different teams uh, say, smaller, 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 and then we start referencing what a value of small enough means to this team. Yeah. We can't have these generalizations. And so maybe I'm at this tension of helping our coaches and not our coaches, not the leading adult coaches, but the client coaches to say, yeah. well, and you can't, you can't say just eight because we're not taking context of team. We have to define what small enough means for each of these teams. Exactly. Looks like it is an eight on this team is going to be a 26 on this team and it's going to be 150 on this team. Right. So I, I can, I agree with you and I could completely see coaching a team to say nothing bigger than an eight as maybe part of a definition of ready. Because if that team has found that every time they bring something into a sprint, that's bigger than an eight kind of to what Scott was saying earlier, it takes maybe the whole sprint to do, or they just can't get it done. Every time a 13 comes in, it just doesn't get finished. So they decide in, in, in an effort to try to make sure they're bringing in work that's small enough that they can consume it and deliver it before the end of a sprint. I can see where they would say, our team's not going to bring in anything bigger than an eight. But it does make me nervous if every team in the organization is being counseled to not bring in everything, anything bigger than an eight. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this sounds a lot like the conversation Scott and I had, and we're very much aligned 
on first principles here. And I think we just had almost a very similar conversation to what Scott and I had on first principles. Okay. Yeah, we, we both very viscerally reacted negatively to the notion that, that there is this dogmatic number of eight and no story should be bigger than eight. You know, right. it's as if Fibonacci's sequence didn't include 13 and 21 and 34. Right. Well, so, but, but in the product backlog, it could be bigger than an eight. It's just, I look at it as like guidance for the product owner. If one of you guys want to ask the team to work on something and it's at the top of your product backlog and it's been estimated as 13 or 21, then that would be sort of a way of indicating to you, hey, dude, this thing's too big. You've got to work with the team in backlog refinement to break it down. Uh, 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 maybe. Let me, let me put a tiny bit of an asterisk on that. Okay. Uh, I would say this should be an indicator that this story is really big and yeah. working a big story comes at a cost. So you might not want to, but there, right. Uh, you know, we go lean back on the, on the invest principle, right? Yeah. It's independent, negotiable, valuable, estimable, small, and uh, time testable. bound. <laughs> well, time bound works too, but testable is, is the actually correct answer. Thank you, Dave. Uh, Right, that matters more than saying I can't do a 34-point story. Right, so if it isn't independent, if you, if you can't deliver it independently, in a in a way that provides value, then you're not splitting it into a smaller story. You're splitting it up into tasks and calling them stories. Right. So some things are big. Doing big things comes at a cost. It comes at a cost of risking your ability to deliver predictably and sometimes that's okay right and you have to be thoughtful about it yeah. so this notion of that you know i liked i liked your statement of a given team might have learned that eight points is the threshold for them yeah. but it's reasons that eight is a threshold for them that matter not the fact that eight is a threshold okay i think that's fair um i want to try to poke another hole in it and see what happens with this so I've, had, I've done interviews with Ron Jeffries and Chet Hendrickson, and they've talked about this idea that everything has to be a one. So for them, nothing can come into a sprint unless it can be finished by the end of the day. And what Chet has told me is that if they don't have the work completed by the end of the day, they throw it all out and start over again the next day because the thing was too complex. So if saying everything has to be an eight is messy, what if everything has to be a one? There are organizations where you can create the conditions where that's a reasonable approach. But if you've got highly dependent teams, if you've got coupled systems, if you've got complexity in your business process as well as your development process and architecture, yeah, then you those conditions wouldn't allow you to establish a constraint like that and yeah. still deliver things that are invest. I completely agree with you. I was hoping we were going to have an argument, but I guess we're not. Yeah, and I'm not going to be able to argue with you either because <laughs> I'm going to put my empathetic product owner uh, sunglasses on for a second and say the amount of time we're going to spend breaking down, breaking down, breaking down, and debating on the ways to slice a three into three ones or a five into five ones fills like a diminishing return on a product owner's time and okay. make sure that we have enough content um, for the ready backlog. Okay. So can we, can, can we talk about this from the product owner's perspective? Because that was one of the things when you guys brought this up that I, I have never really thought about that before is from the role of the product owner, if we say it has to be an eight or a one or whatever, if we don't have any kind of boundaries on that, um, what what kind of baggage does this carry for the product owner who's just trying to get the team to finish something or or commit to doing something in a sprint? Yeah, you know, it creates uh, well, it, it pokes some holes in in the team, and that if a product owner or the team can't get things smaller, for me, I've got to smell that we don't have a good relationship between a product owner and a tech lead. There's going to be limitations of that product owner of slicing. And when the product owner is being asked to slice as small as they can and say, you know what, with the brain knowledge I have from my product lens, this is the smallest slice I see. And the team comes back and says, you know what, that's still a 13 and our smallest uh, for acceptance of ready is an eight. I now need to start thinking about slicing in conjunction or in collaboration with a tech lead. 
Um, and so I create more dependencies in that relationship between the product owner and the tech lead or uh, the representative team members of the delivery team. That's my first thought. My second thought is as a product owner, and I started thinking about slicing and slicing and slicing, I go back to how much am I now breaking all that user story mapping I did? How much am I changing the narrative of release planning? How much am I changing the release of, or the, the focus of all of the, the pre-work we did in feature definition and acceptance criteria by forcing me to slice this smaller and smaller and smaller Am I going to have escaped scope or over-engineering of other things into the process? Those are my two initial thoughts. Okay, so it's just maybe going to be more work than it's worth and slow you down from being able to deliver value for the customer. Yeah. yeah. If I can add sort of the, the three lenses I look at when, when I'm putting on my product owner sunglasses, Right. One of them is uh, I'm trying to make decisions about about bang for the buck, right? How do, how do I how do I make choices about uh, not just the value that gets delivered, but value at a cost, right? So um, so I'm thinking about story pointing, and I'm using story points combined with the value of the stories to make decisions around which things are more important to do first. I also have the context which, uh, which Andrew touched on around sort of the integrity of the value. Am I slicing it down in a way that undermines the realization of that value? Yeah. And, and then the third one is around um, putting things into the system that the team can predictably pull, generate, and push out of the system. So do you guys, do you guys think that we get too caught up in trying to attain predictability and and like what we're sacrificing is the ability to deliver value just so we can try to seem predictable i think it i think it sort of depends on who's uh who's driving the chariot okay um so what would be from a product owner's perspective what would be like an ideal way to approach this i mean you you want to be able to look at that whole product backlog and say this is when the release will be ready or this is when this batch of stuff will be done right yeah, so like I, I have a, a starting point rule of thumb that I use to sort of manage the risk, and I've and I've got a few reasons for the, the risk of not delivering well, and and I've and I've got a few points that I think about that gives me the starting point of thinking about stories as being things that can be built in one to three days. Okay. Um, right. The, the the first one is. Uh, the pragmatic one. So coming back towards my, my background coming out of the PERT days when I was doing task estimation, uh, I didn't want to estimate things that were too small because I sort of guaranteed that I was wasting time estimating things, right? If I spent 10 minutes estimating a 10 minute task, I just made it take 20 minutes when I could have just done it. Right. So I, I sort of landed on, this pattern in those days of I don't want to estimate things that take less than half a day. I want to just do them. Okay. And relative to that, I didn't want to estimate things that uh, were bigger than four days. And the way I got to that pattern, because I was likely, I was introducing too much error in my estimation. Okay. And the reason I got to that was because I had read somewhere that psychologically, uh, people are really good at establishing estimates and relative estimates within a range of about an order of magnitude. When you started to get beyond an order of magnitude and difference between the thing you were estimating, you started to introduce inconsistent error rates in your ability to estimate. Okay. So it's almost like you're making the case for no estimates. Uh, well, no estimates... So my, my belief is that no estimates is actually estimating before somebody tries to detect whether you're estimating. And you, you, you make things be a size that okay. implicitly represents an estimation process in order to not estimate. So I think that no estimates is technically cheating and estimating before oh. the estimation stage. Okay. Okay. Um, so I want to ask you about something. I did a, a, a podcast recently for um, 
projectmanagement.com about probabilistic forecasting with a guy named Troy Lightfoot. And um, one of the things that he, he kind of turned me on to were these poker planning cards where there's only three cards for each person who's playing. One card, uh, and I'm going to use the acronyms instead of the words because it's fairly adult language. There's a card with a one on it. There's a card that just says TFB. And then there's a card that says NFC. So <laughs> F and big, yeah. no F and clue. Right. Now, is that would that be something that would make more so, I mean, that sounds kind of along the lines of like, I can do this in three days. If that was the only question the team was being asked and they said, okay, everything we can do in three days, we'll call it a one. The rest of the stuff, it's just too big. Would that work? I, I think for, for an elegant team, yeah, that's, that's not an unreasonable starting point. Okay. Yeah, I think back to my localized problem um, of of thinking about where we are on our base camp journeys. Right. And what you just described sounds like a huge failure rate to me with a team we're trying to get predictable and stable heading between one and two or three-ish area. But a team that's um, on a more um, whip-limited based, uh, less scrum approach, that feels like a really good approach. Because if that team has the maturity to say, you know what, we need to mitigate how big it is, and then we need to do it. If those were our two states, and our definition of doing it is we know that it's called this one, or it's too big to do within our time-bound definition, yeah, yeah, that makes great sense to me. And actually, I think that's similar to the way when I think about how product owners run their day-to-day and product managers are running their day-to-day, that's what they're doing. They're saying, okay, I have this epic and it's too big to give to a team. So how do I break this down? A feature. And this feature, is it big enough to be a tone epic or is it the right size to be a feature? And what we just did was said one or uh, too big. Right. It's a one now. So now I can go write my acceptance criteria. I can get my stakeholder buy-in. I can do all of those things on all the features that build up to this thing. And then I'm now doing that process again. And maybe that's for that mature team can trickle down to the, to the most granular node of the delivery team or the delivery product owner team that says that feature, we break it into these stories. Too big of a story or the right story? Cool, let's run with it. Um, that's how I see product lenses already happening on what they're doing to get to the delivery team. And then we have this little bit of context shift with Scrum Base, Basecamp 1, Basecamp 2 teams on predictability that says, okay, now we gotta go from the one or two big to the one, two, three, five, eight, thirteen model, so we can have more predictability or more st- stabilization as we begin to flow. Okay, so I, I want to go back to something you just said a minute ago because I've I've been kind of locked on it since you mentioned it. As a product owner, you're sizing work. You're you're taking your guess at how big this thing is, right? Yeah, I think you have. Uh... You know, you're trusting your collaborations with with lead engineers and architects and these other people. That thing's enormous. Here's a swag, right? We use that term swag. So I think yeah. a product owner, you know, is ballparking. That's in the swag of realm of which I need to start breaking it down, or it's too big. So I need to break it into multiple things. Okay. Because when you said it, the thing that kind of popped into my head that I I'd never thought of before was, I mean, I'm always teaching. I taught it today. Like you as a product owner, you're not allowed to estimate anything. Don't even bother. But um, but you're you guys are doing that anyway. You can't not do it, right? Yeah, you're implicitly doing something because you're not wasting somebody's time with yeah. something that take a year. You're already doing some sort of filtering. And to Andrew's point, that that collaboration and that relationship, you know, if you've got a technical background, some of that pre-filtering you do on your own and you run the risk of doing too much of it. And if you don't, it's a collaborative dialogue with your tech lead or so, you know, other folks on the team. Okay. Because the other side of that, Dave, is right. we talk about story points for the delivery team, but the product owner has to do some sort of translation in their head of how many stories are being consumed on a regular basis so that I can get enough stories ready for grooming and enough stories ready for pointing, right? They're not at that moment of authorship doing the estimation of, I think that the team's going to call this an eight or a 13 or a three. They're saying, I need to get enough content so the team can point it for me. So they're already in that framing of, what's my cycle time and my flow to get stories to the team to point to then declare the sprint ready backlog. But the product backlog or the product owner backlog of tasks or activities to do for that role 
is not pointed in points, it's in units. I've got to get 20 stories ready by the next refinement session. I've got to get, because some teams go through 20. Some teams can only get through three. And so if I'm a product owner, I have this translation in my head of, um, as a product leader, looking at the product owner that's got three, I would assume that those three have significantly more depth than a product owner that's producing 20 in the same time frame for a team, right? And so we've got this unit differentiation in there that has to be translated all the way up. Yeah. So I worked on one project a while, while back, and um, it was, it, we had a massive backlog, like thousands of things in the backlog. And the guy who was the head of IT had been a part of building the original version of the system we were rebuilding. So he's the one that created the entire product backlog because he knew all the features that were in the app. And then he estimated everything with just by himself, his own estimate. But then when the team would take the work, I would have them estimate it. And I kept sort of a running track of the variance between the two estimates and tried to use that to calculate like when the thing would actually ship. And I'm wondering if a product owner might be having their own way of estimating just to figure out if it's even worth bringing this thing to the team because we don't want to waste their time by handing them something that's massive. Well, yeah, I mean, we do. And that's, uh, that's, that's why I sort of opened with my overly academic analogy against like building, building out, uh, <laughs> right. The complexity of the problem space yeah. is going to be analogous when you've got, a fairly mature or fairly competent engineering team with the complexity of the solution space, right? Okay. And elegant design is a fairly good representation of your problem space. You can, you can see that correlation. And so if you've got in your head a notion of how complex of a problem are you trying to solve that should directionally guide you towards the level of complexity involved in the solution. Okay. And we're doing... I think we're doing, coaching the same thing you just identified, Dave, that you get uh, at feature definition. We have an acceptance criteria that's author, and you put a couple of the players in a room, the product owner, a tech lead, an architect, and they take a swag at it. And yeah. over time, we're doing the same thing. Okay, we swag this at an X value, and then it corresponded to this many story points. This feature was an X value, this many story points. And so we're looking at that variance between swag to actualized story points. And we're looking for that to stabilize over time. That's a signal that our swag predictions are aligning closer to our story point actualization. And the, the less variance in that, the better predictions we can do earlier in the process of how or what to bring to the team. So almost like there needs to be product owner points and story points. Yeah, you know, I think the way that I've seen it coached uh, thus far has been using that term of swag. How many sprints do you think this might take? How many months do you might think this take? And if you want to call that product owner story, product owner points. I've never heard anybody use that before. It just popped into my head. Yeah, you know, I've, I've used value points, uh, but only like I, I worry when, when I think about the teams we work with and yeah. we're introducing change in how they do work, I, I would worry about introducing another term and the complexity around it as being something that's just confusing. Like I think it's an interesting academic debate for the three of us or for somebody like Ron Jeffers, but uh, I wouldn't want to introduce that extra notion as, an, as a thing to be tracked and thought of. I, I, think you, I think you get the value and that reconciliation of looking at the difference between the story points and the hours when you're tasking it out. Okay. Um. I want to come back to that in a minute, but before we do that, how do you guys estimate value for a story or a product backlog item? I, I use this. I use the exact same principle of Fibonacci and relative value. Okay. Okay. So now, there's an underlayment that has varying degrees of specificity depending on and a whole notion of factors, but basically how concretely you are able or willing to predict uh, the realization of value in terms of uh, right, lifetime economic value. Like ultimately it goes all the way back to Reimers and stuff of how many dollars is it worth? And then okay. there's a whole ton of assumptions and hypotheses that get between the realized dollars and this particular story 
to the point where it's really just directional. And so you have had, I think you have to land in a Fibonacci relative value assumption. Okay. I don't know, Andrew. If but Scott, are you doing that on a, oh, like a weighted metric or are you doing it singular on economic value? Uh, I, I'm going to start with economic value and then in that context, even the, the soft ROI, the abstract things like improved usability or uh, an impact on experience, uh, that those things have, there, there is a lingua franca. There's, there is some conversion in terms of customer lifetime value or strategic positioning or something that lets you connect everything back together. And then it's, a judgment call about whether or not you believe it. It is yeah. it is largely based on your own biases or your own assumptions about things though, right? I mean, there's no way to like create a formula to lock that down. Right. It's going to be tied to what core values you think for your company is going to drive revenue. Is it user acquisition or is it uh, more dollars to the same users? Is it organic growth versus paid growth? You have to account for all of those different things. And I think with some of our clients, we have to first figure out what are the core values of attributes of a product-led organization look like here? Is okay. it revenue first, revenue first, revenue first at the cost of marketing, at the cost of customer acquisition, at the cost of all these other things? And if it's revenue first, we have to then do it weighted on how much top-line revenue can we get on this? Okay. Is it revenue plus ops savings over time? Is it revenue plus tech debt? Is it revenue plus lifetime value of customer? Is it revenue plus any of those weighted things we could do? And I think you have to create a different matrix for each unique situation for each client based off what values they believe drive ultimate economic growth. Absolutely. And, and often for every product within a client, it's going to be different. And the other, the other thing that's really tricky about this one, Dave, and it's, it's, it's a really weird uh, wormhole to go down in a story point conversation uh, is that you know, ultimately it comes down to enterprise valuation. What's, what's, the, what's the impact on the worth of the company? And the people who can have that conversation aren't the people who are pointing stories. Well, okay. So the right people in the room. So I want to write this down before I forget the phrase. Um, so let's say that I'm a brand new team. Like they're just getting to Basecamp 1. All we're trying to do is make sure they have stable teams, a well-formed backlog, and the ability to, to make and make commitments in a sprint. Yep. And if I go to those guys and say, look, you have to figure out the, the impact this is going to have on the value or the worth of the company, their heads are going to explode. Yeah. Yeah. You're, okay. Those people aren't having that conversation in that context. Okay. So what we do is we, we set up rails and containers and, and it's, it's just like, it's just, it's a perfect analog to architectural decomposition. Uh, I don't have to think about my systems architecture when I decide what to put in this class in order to build this piece of code, right? But that context is relevant. Okay. It's also slightly scary to think about it as a generalized statement because I think about different clients we have and the different makeups of the teams and the organizational structure. And we, we've overgeneralized, I think, in this conversation, the term product owner, where some of our clients have product owners and product managers and business stakeholders, where in some organizations, business stakeholder and product manager is the portfolio tier relationship setting that uh, outcome-based vision. And they can actually do those things on an epic level um, approach, talk about the economic impact. But the product owner in that story is still trying to figure out how to translate feature value into an epic value. And so there's a disconnect at that level. When you have three tiers of people above the delivery team, all focused on value as well. But then okay. some of our clients have a product owner who sits with the business partner and the business partner says, I don't care, just solve this problem for me. Yeah. And you guys figure out the what, the why, the how and justify it. And so those, those are dramatically different worlds of how you have to coach and the tiers you need and where you're defining value and who's responsible for it. And then the skills that make up of the product owner versus the product manager. You know, I, I don't think I could take a product owner from scenario B and plug them into scenario A and, or A to B and either one of them be happy. Yeah. But is it, is it fair to say that all, all three of those different variants on the product owner role, they're all going to have to be able to look at the items in the product backlog and make some kind of somewhat educated guess as to whether or not they think those items are in a state that are fit to be discussed with the development team. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and getting back to the, the way you prompted the question, Dave, yeah. if, 
think about a team trying to decide what to pull into a given sprint right. and what stories to make ready to pull into a given sprint. I think about a couple things. I want to make sure that my team is finishing stories throughout the sprint and not only at the end of the sprint. So, right? so, so I, I want to interrupt for one second and just make yeah. sure that I think I know what you're saying, but I want to make sure it's clear for everybody listening. What you're saying is when they bring stuff into a sprint, it should be of a size that every like one to three days, the PO is being told, hey, this thing's done, as opposed to this thing takes the full two weeks or however long your sprint is. Right. Okay. If, I've got, if I've got five people on a team and all five of them pull one story and they all finish on the last day of the sprint, right. that's a problem. Like at a systems level, we know that that's going to go sideways. We yeah. just know it. We've, we've seen it every time. Okay. Uh, for different reasons, but statistically, it's going to go sideways. Yeah. So we want to avoid that. Okay. Um, so we we want to be finishing stuff throughout the sprint, and we want to do it because sometimes we're building the wrong stuff. Right. Smaller bets. Right. So we're placing smaller bets, and we want an opportunity when possible to go back and redo it while it's still in the sprint. Right. Because the the first level of language of sprint commitment is I did all the stuff I said I was going to go do. The second level of language of sprint commitment is the stuff we picked worked the way we expected it to. And so maybe that means I have to go back and rework it. And so if, because I built it the wrong way, I was still trying to solve the right problem, but I didn't take the right approach. And if I have a big thing and I took the wrong approach, I don't find out until it's too late. And it's yeah. going to be the sprint before I find out. Okay. Right. And then that third level is we took something in and it is the best version of solving the problem that we can produce today. Which may be updated tomorrow. Correct. When we learn something new, yeah. but with what we know now, we are validating at that third level. This was the best way to solve that problem with the knowledge we had today. Okay. So, and that's why it's in those smaller bets. Okay. So abandoning that limit of eight for a minute, we all agree that what's in the backlog, there has to be some way for the PO to assess the size and that when the stuff gets to the top of the backlog and they're ready to ask the team to work on it in the next couple of sprints, they want it to be a size that is small enough so that they should expect when they you know, hand the thing over that they're going to see something back in a couple of days. And at that point, it should be okay to ask the team to figure out how big they think the thing is. Yes? Yeah, like uh, you know, if, if 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 I if I use the empathy hat and put on the, if I try and empathize with the team who is trying to think about the definition of ready that they want to use before they're willing to pull stories in, um, I want as a developer to be able to do three or more, so let's call it three to ten stories per sprint per okay. hour, right? That's the, the system kind of really benefits from that as well. And if, you know, if we, if we look at the, the design of the system delivery, uh, it takes advantage. It exploits the dynamics of things that are roughly that size. It makes the team more effective in the context of there being multiple teams working together. Okay. So it's almost like we're more concerned with a continual throughput than with... Well, I don't know if I'd say more concerned, but I would say we're also concerned about it. Okay, we're also concerned. All right. Um, yeah, and so now, Dave, I'm gonna I'm gonna play you for a second. I want to poke at that. Okay. There's something Scott I'm at it, man. Of like, well, now why are we not just using quantity of stories as opposed to story points? Because if I'm gonna go on this lens of I want my team members to all pull in three to five things within a sprint, yeah, I'm artificially gaming it possibly. Absolutely. Changing the slicing to say, look, I'm doing the three to five and this team calls it a 25 and this team calls it a three. But that's the only thing that's now relative is what we call it, calling it pineapples or apples. It's the same um, amount of stories that we're being measured on now. And, and so we're more like, focused on output instead of outcome. Yes. And that yes. was, I think, what yeah, birthed yeah. this is my struggle. Yeah. So, um, like, there's... I'm going to bring in something from another field, a field of OKRs and setting KPIs. Uh, when you set a single metric, 
uh, we know that you pe people adapt their behavior relative to the ruler that you use to measure them, and you create a pathology uh, sort of always. Like pop and, music. Sure. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, by the way, Dave, I'm going to let that one slide because Sorry. I agree with you that <laughs> the only jazz, especially 1950s bebop. Awesome. Set that aside. Um, so I'm, I'm a big Coltrane fan as well. Good. Um, you you want to have three KPIs because one KPI will universally always get gamed. Two KPIs leaves you open to gaming the system. Three KPIs, when they are thoughtful, is sort of the recipe for finding balance in the force. And so... Uh, like any good I, tripod. Like any good tripod, yeah. Right. Okay. So if, if I'm looking at things where I have opportunities to deliver throughout the period of time that is my sprint, and I'm looking at things that are invest... Yeah. Looking at things where the value is justified relative to the cost, those three things give me a good balance where I can come in and say something like three days per developer in a two-week sprint cycle is a thing that makes a ton of sense. Right? That that allows the system to flow. It allows me to course correct when I'm missing the mark, and it allows me. Uh, to place lots of little bets. Okay. So I'm going to ask a question I'm a little scared to ask, but does that mean that we should just go back to time? Uh, well, no. I, no, it, it doesn't. I mean, let me re-ask the question. So uh, assuming uh, that we have those other two legs of the tripod, Right. Assuming we have some way of figuring out or, or the value of the thing um, instead of some abstracted number, whether it's risk, complexity, and effort, or ideal days or whatever. I mean, couldn't we just go to hours? Well, you, you, you can, but it comes at cost. And the cost is you're going to put in the effort to effectively and accurately estimate hours for work that you don't ever do. And you don't need to do that. Right. Which is why you get back to points and which is why I use complexity is my proxy for points, which goes back to my analogy of you're not figuring out every phone call at the time you decide where to put the radios. Yeah. But what if, what if you were um, with that, you know, product owner team that you had kind of taking the swag and saying, okay, these 15 things we have in the product backlog at the top of the product backlog, they all seem like they're one to three days of work. So I'm going to ask for the next 10 in this sprint. And Maybe the team hasn't estimated this stuff at all yet. Maybe they don't even do that until sprint planning and they just go straight to tasking. And if they find that this stuff is more than three days of work, then they can say, dude, this is too big. Oh, okay, so I don't know that I would ask for the next 10. What I, the, the, the way I'd always approached it in the past, and, I, and I'll let both of you guys correct me because it's been a long time since I've been a product owner on the team. Uh, it was the team pulls from the top of the list and they pull whatever they, whatever they feel like they can to their level of capacity. Right. So I'm not asking for 10. I'm trying to have 30 ready to go. Yeah. If I think they're going to pull roughly 10 and, and I'm going to try and have those 30 in order where the 10 that are at the top of the list are, I believe more appropriate to do first, probably because they're more valuable than the 20 that are the next in my top 30. Okay. So I'm not asking for 10 and letting them say yes or no. I'm saying how much can, you know, do what you can. Yeah. And most important ones are at the top. I guess I'm thinking of that conversation as a little more, I mean, I agree with, you know, yes, the team is pulling, but I'm thinking of it more like the product owner is first asking. It's not just that you order it, but you're like, hey, can we do this stuff in the sprint? Because this is important and this would be a great sprint goal to achieve. Can you actually handle this? Like Joey Chestnut, can you eat 73 hot dogs in 10 minutes? And Joey Chestnut might say, no, nope, I'm, I'm a little full. I had a big breakfast this 4th of July. I can only eat 60. That's yeah, his choice. So, 
Yeah. So, so this is probably a weakness of mine, and, I, and I'll give you my answer, and then let let Andrew give you a better answer. Um, I kind of don't care about the theme of the sprint because what I care about is the theme of the release. Ooh. And yep. be, that's a whole new can of worms. Right. But but <laughs> like when when I'm thinking about a group of things coming out together, I'm thinking about value cohesion, and I'm yeah. thinking that is defined externally, not internally. And so I care about the chunks of things that get released concurrently to my customer. And that's based on the release schedule. And whether something comes out in the first sprint or the second sprint is about managing the risk of being wrong in uh, technical and implementation risk. It's not about market risk. And so I don't care from, from my locus about whether something's in the first sprint versus the second. Okay. So that's that's probably a weakness of mine. No, it's, it's a valid opinion. I'm curious to hear what Andrew has to say. Yeah, no, I'm pretty pretty close with that. I put my rose-colored product owner glasses on again, and I go back to my story mapping exercise that we did on these stories weeks ago, probably. And I think about where was the MVP, where was the MMP, where was uh, okay. sync. And so, yes, do I want to be able to see a thing in a sprint and I want to see more things in the sprint and I want to be able to say, not what I had in my head or the stakeholder to say, not what I had in my head. It needs to be this or that. I buy all those things. But to, to Scott's point and where I think a lot of our clients, especially in, in our teams that are going through their earlier transformation um, journey, is still coupled into, I need to be able to see how I get business value out of this thing. And that one story isn't shippable to production to bring me business value. It is shippable to production to make sure it goes to production and works and we're uh, reducing the dependencies and all of those things that we talk about, yes. But for the business stakeholder and from the uh, top line economic side of how I'm going to get value from it, yeah. that one story doesn't actually mean much until I can have a collection of them go as a release. So this is this is been, and this part's really cool for me because it's given me, uh, I feel like I'm ha feeling a little more empathy for the, the struggle of the PO. I think of it more from the scrum master perspective. Like I'm trying to get these guys to like deliver on what they say they're going to deliver. I, I want to help them reach that ability. Um, and I hadn't, I guess I just never really thought about it with the PO. I mean, I know they own the release and I do think about that, but that the sprint is a means to an end for the product owner. Yeah, absolutely. And that partnership between the scrum master and the product owner of uh, if we use the points or the hours or whatever unit you're going to use there, you know, this release it's we're predicting is going to be this many sprints. Okay. And, and as a product owner, do I think that there's probably a better conversation to be had between the scrum master and the technical lead of saying the higher complexity or higher risks things to develop and implement should be accounted for earlier so that as the risk drags out and the complexity drags out, we can mitigate that faster so we don't have big surprises at the end. And so the okay. sequencing of work as a product owner, yes, do I want to see working test of software? Do I want to make sure that we were aligned on what we were talking about? But I would put that in Scott's complexity score. As a product owner, this thing seems the most complex where we're going to have the uh, misalignment from what I think and how I wrote an acceptance criteria and how we've groomed this thing to what actually gets put into the code, where's the highest possible variation happening? Yeah. We, should, we should really focus on those ones first. And okay. that is a product owner's what I'm focused on is making sure those big nuggets are going to be unlocked faster and cleaner so that all the other small nuggets I don't actually have to be a part of because the big one has been solved and I'm working on that next thing that's coming down the pipe. I, okay. as a product owner, almost... Uh, have the rose-colored glasses on of like, I've wrote an amazing set of features with acceptance criteria with a tech lead and the architects. And I wrote a whole bunch of amazing user stories with the tech lead and the team because we groom them together. That I don't predict surprises coming. And so I'm really trying to actually get out of the delivery teams away and give them the keys to the castle and go yeah. so that I can bring the next one. And if I'm codependent or the team's codependent on me, I haven't, I, I've missed something upstream as a product owner. And so right. I, as a product owner, don't even want to think about the sprint. Okay. So I want to try to, I want to try to summarize it and kind of bring us to a, a, cl a closing point, but I want to say something and see, check in with you guys and see if, if I'm actually understanding or having a, a better understanding of the whole concern about the eight point limit on bringing something into a sprint. Um, 
you're more concerned with the release and getting all the stuff that you need into the release and to have to take time to take time, the team's development time away because of some artificial barrier that says nothing bigger than an eight can come in. It's totally irrelevant for you. And it's just slowing everything down because just get it all, get this stuff ready for the release and break it up however you need to break it up. And yeah, you want to see stuff within a sprint every couple of days, but it's more about the bigger picture. Well, that's part of it. The other part is to dogmatically call it an eight because different teams use different. Right. Well, whatever their threshold is. Right. Well, it, it ends up meaning if, you, if you've got this, uh, this dictated policy, then you're actually dictating different policies to different teams and it's yeah. not likely to be appropriate for all of them. So both of us, I think, reacted to the, no, 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 that, that can't be, the speed limit can't be 25 on every road. <laughs> okay, yeah. But um, I guess the way I think of that, eight, I think of it differently, and maybe this is just kind of a background thing. I, I, I would never think that everybody should have to drive 25 on every single road. But I do think that there are some roads where certain drivers should probably be allowed to go 70 or 90 or even faster. And some drivers should be like 40 miles an hour. Yeah. Right. Which was why Andrew and I got started down this path because we're like, yeah, based on the first principles, there are circumstances where it happens to be for a particular team that eight is a good number, which is also how you opened this call. If I remember. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but to, for everybody to say, well, no, no, eight is the law. Both of us had a problem, and so it devolved into a let's revisit the first principles and think about it. And and part of why we revisited it is all of those, well, a lot of the first principles came out of small team agile. Yeah. And so opportunity for us to be thoughtful of the ramifications of large-scale agile. Well, and, and I, I think one other aspect, too, is I know from – What's changed for me in this call, which I'm grateful to you both for, is I always think about it from the perspective of the scrum master and trying to get the team sorted, like get them to be high performing and delivering on what they say they're going to deliver. And in, from that context, um, I can totally see why I would want to say to a team, you set your threshold limit if it's eight or three or 25 or whatever. Um, but I never thought about how that impacted like upstream to the PO and what they're trying to achieve for the business. It's never even occurred to me to think of that, um, which now makes me feel kind of stupid, but I'm glad that you <laughs> brought that to my attention. Nah, it's all good, man. All right, this is, this, this is uh, like, I like when Leading Agile talks about breaking dependencies. Yeah. A lot of people, their first assumption is architectural. You know, how do I do a strangler pattern and wrap my model up in an API and blah, blah, blah. But uh, the next level is, oh, well, I've got business process dependencies. And then it's, well, wait, I have decision-making dependencies and yeah. I have visualization dependencies. Like the, it's all multidisciplinary. And that's, that's, that's part of what makes uh, Leading Agile attractive to me as Scott as a place to work yeah. because we're solving this multidimensional problem and we're bringing in these different perspectives, right? I underemphasize the the needs of the scrum master to help developers actualize uh, accomplishing and not missing their commitments and i overemphasize the cohesion of the the value dependency of delivering this group of stories to the market together yeah yeah i think i've been so focused on teams that can't deliver in a sprint like that's just like <laughs> i can't even get past it so see yeah that other you, stuff has been hard for me. Yeah, you used you used the magic phrase, right? It's a means to an end. Sprint predictability is a means to an end of stakeholder expectations, developing and delivering increasing agency to the teams so that they can be more adaptive and respond to changes in the market without all the bureaucracy of running it back up the chain. Yeah. And all, all of this stuff is interdependent and super compelling. And so it's great that each of us has a different focus and we bring them together and find balance. Yeah. And for, for me, the value in everything we just talked about um, is not that we discovered anything new or that we actually reacted on first principles. It's that we found a way to communicate and translate. Yeah. Because Dave, what you just talked about your lens and Scott, what you just talked about your lens and my lens, they're, they're just 
different lenses of the same story, but what's happening is they're almost in different languages. And yeah. we have to have that point where we translate a point to a nominal count or a nominal count to a relative count or a whatever to a whatever, because each of these lenses has its own perception. And what we're trying to mitigate here is false perceptions and find alignment in narrative. Yeah. And, and yeah, I have a whole other thing I want to bring up another time, but I'm going to save it because this has been going up for a while. Um, thank you guys for doing this. This was a really cool conversation. Um, Andrew, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Best way would be through the Leading Agile email, andrew.young at leadingagile.com. Okay. And Mr. Selhorst? Uh, yeah, same thing for me, scott.selhorst uh, or uh, at leadingagile.com or also uh, selhorst on Twitter. Okay. Those are the easiest ways to find me. Cool. All right, guys. Thank you much. Thank you very much for doing this. This was a really neat conversation. Hey, thanks, Dave.